Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Uh, I usually say, as promised, uh, here is Mick Dumkey or whoever the guest is, but I didn't promise uh, that Mick Dumkey would be my guest. I saw an email and I immediately reached out to him, but Mick's my guest anyway. Welcome back to the show, Mick. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. And hey, Dennis. Nice, hey. To, nice to. I, I actually can see Dennis, so I can say good to see you. Yeah. I for some reason Mick's camera's not working. I don't even have a camera, as everybody knows. That's the joke because my computer's from the uh, 20th century. It doesn't matter. Uh, Mick uh, Dumpy. I've decided not to distract you with my extraordinary looks by turning <laughs> on my camera. That's what's going on. So. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That, thank you for that uh, welcome non-distraction. Uh, so as everybody knows, Mick Dumpy's my my uh, partner in crime for the reader days, first Tuesday. Uh, we've done many stories together. He's been a guest on the show many, many times. And I didn't know I was going to invite him to come on the show until I got an email from his current employer, ProPublica, talking about his outstanding new article for ProPublica, which I didn't even know he wrote. That's how out of it I am. So I want to thank uh, Alessandra Calderon for sending me the email that conclu- concludes with this line. Mick Dumpke is also available for comment and interviews. I read that line, Mick, and I called you up. Hey, come on, my show you did and don't think that that email is just sent to everyone either ben i am not available for interviews <laughs> on demand so yeah well it's a highly uh, personalized uh, select list that we it, it is and I, to, to underscore that point i will tell you the greeting i got okay it is here's the greeting hello comma <laughs> Oh, yeah. Hello, comma. All right. Yeah, so I figure about a thousand people got that uh, email as well. The personal Uh, touch really works, as you can tell. So, hey. Well, uh, this is a great article. And actually, Mick and I uh, have sort of delved into this uh, issue before. Uh, but it gets into the whole issue of uh, violence in the city of Chicago, how the city responds to violence, uh, how the federal government responds to violence, how the federal government in conjunction with the city uh, responds uh, to violence. And I am just going to, uh, to get it started, read the lead uh, to Mick's story. Uh, and I'm going to say I did not know this until I read this lead and, and I thought I knew everything. So here we go. As violent crime continued to climb in Chicago and other cities across the country, Attorney General William P. Barr announced that the U.S. Department of Justice was mobilizing to help. Dozens of federal agents would be sent to work with local police to combat gangs and illegal guns. Quote, our message to gangs, gang leaders and gang members is this, says Barr. When we throw the federal book at you, it'll be a knockout blow. End of quote. That was in 1992 during Barr's first stint leading the Justice Department under former President President George H.W. Bush. End of mixed lead. Mick, you caught me off guard with that one. I knew that Barr had been attorney general. I didn't know literally he said the same thing in 92 that he was saying in 2020. How'd you find your way to this? Well, I uh, I didn't know that Barr had said that either, but I did know from previous reporting that um, various uh, political actors, uh, federal officials had promised to send Chicago, quote unquote, help in the form of extra federal agents, that that had happened repeatedly through the years. And so I was interested in kind of exploring that theme and looking into it a little more closely and uh, in the course of my research, I came across, um, you know, coverage of this press uh, press conference that Barr held in 1992. Um, and to tell you how times had changed at, at that time, he was basically making announcement that more FBI agents were coming to Chicago and other cities because they were free from um, their previous assignment, which had been tracking Soviet spies. So uh, the Soviet Union, of course, had recently uh, fallen at that time, and um, 
the various states that made up the Soviet Union were declaring independence and whatnot. So Barr felt that there was some sort of peace dividend from the collapse of the former Soviet Union and that uh, Chicago and other cities would benefit at that time. The politics are a little different now, Ben, but amazingly, the uh, the central message, including the quote, was almost the same, which was was really striking to me. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I just have to uh, note a peace dividend. That's what they called it. Uh, so there's no need to have uh, surveillance of the Soviet Union because it no longer exists. So instead of diverting the money that we spend on FBI spies, uh, putting into mental health, let's say, uh-uh, we're just going to send the agents to Chicago. Uh, so much for d- the defund the police movement back in the year 1992. Um Ancient history, Mick, but uh, still relevant to this day. All right. Uh, so what evidence is there that uh, sending more agents to Chicago in 1992 was helpful? Uh, no evidence that I've come across. That's not to say they didn't do anything um, that was helpful. It's just that I don't know what evidence they have of it. And, you know, as I noted in the piece, Ben, Every single presidential administration since then, Democrat or Republican, has at one point in time or another vowed to send extra federal resources, extra federal agents to Chicago to help with this very problem, this ongoing crisis we have here with gun violence. So the formula, the old playbook, keeps coming back over and over again. And uh, what was interesting to me is that at previous points, um, Most of the time, these offers of help, these mobilizations of extra federal agents had been welcomed. They'd been cheered on by officials in Chicago, um, namely our previous mayors, uh, Mayor Daley and Mayor Emanuel. Um, And so my how the politics have shifted where uh, now, of course, uh, you know, anything that Trump is announcing, I'm going to send you, you know, I'm going to send in the feds. Um, you know, is greeted, no, 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 we don't want anything to do with Trump. Um, at least that's the initial reaction, right? Because uh, Lori Lightfoot later came around and said, well, if you're going to send people to help us work gun cases, uh, sure, we can use that kind of help, but we don't want what you were talking about before. We certainly don't want anything going on in Portland. So um, immediately, um, you asked me about, is there any evidence that this has helped? And I assumed that you were referring to uh, actually addressing the issue of gun violence um, and law enforcement strategies. But, uh, you know, as you and I both know, these arguments are highly, these announcements are highly politicized. Even then they were highly politicized. This was a tough on crime era, a lock them up era, 1992. And so now in 2020, almost 30 years later, uh, the response, the announcement from Trump and, and Barr were, of course, politicized in a different way. Uh, they're, they're, you know, making a law and order plea to Trump's base at this point in time. And the response was highly politicized uh, by Lori Lightfoot, who is at the same time trying to appear that she's, of course, anti-Trump and that she's in sympathy with people who are out in the streets protesting, but also uh, wanting to appear receptive to anything that might help deal with gun violence in Chicago. Yeah, it, uh, it, Lord Lightfoot is really walking uh, a very delicate tightrope uh, in trying to be anti-Trump, as you put out, as you stated, and also showing that she's concerned about violence in Chicago, so you can't uh, turn down uh, offers of assistance from the feds. Uh, we get into that, that delicate tightrope that she's walking. Let's just go back to uh, the 90s. The highly politicized era, tough on crime, uh, lock them up era, as you uh, phrased it. And uh, so I just want to examine the uh, impact of the lock them up, tough on crime attitude in the 90s. Because, Mick, to a certain degree, it's still prevalent in 2020, to a certain degree. There's uh, countervailing forces, which we'll get into, but it's still prevalent uh, in some circles. So what I guess let me put it to you this way. I know a lot of people were locked up, but is there a correlation? Did anybody ever find a correlation between the number of people murdered in Chicago and the number of people locked up? 
I'm sure people have studied that, but um, and I can't sit here and cite a particular study or analysis of that. But um, I mean, crime numbers did go down. Um, as, as bad as things are right now, we're, if we're just looking at homicides, I mean, boy, let's just pause for one second. What a depressing thing we're talking, we're having to just, the fact that we're having to discuss this utterly depressing, um, but so important as well, of course. Um, so right now we're, you know, enduring a spike of violence in Chicago. And I think that the numbers show that we could have, um, we just had a month that was supposedly had the most murders of any month, single month since 1992. I think it was September, 1992. And we're currently on pace to, to end the year, um, you know, somewhere in like the eight hundreds, uh, with total numbers of homicides in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We haven't been at that level for a very long time. Back in the early nineties, um, it, the, the total homicide count hit in the 900s on a couple of occasions. And then I think in the early to mid 70s, there were a couple years where it was even higher than that, um, the highest levels, at least in the upper 90s. So my point is that since the early 90s, the numbers have gone up and down a little bit, but they've on the whole, there's been a downward trend. Is that the result of some particular strategy? Is that the result of federal agents? Is that the result of broken windows or hotspot policing of locking up more offenders, all of which has gone on in the interim period. Um, it's notable that crime generally has declined over the whole United States during that time. Obviously some blips, um, certain cities have had larger drops than others. New York and LA, of course, were always compared to those cities have had far more significant um, and lasting decreases in violent crime than Chicago has. But in general, across the country, violent crime has gone down um, until sort of these these blips like one we're seeing right now. So that's a long way away of saying that I think, you know, criminologists, people who do this for a living, who study this intensely, look at all the data and various kinds of factors that may play into it, um, are debating, you know, why did New York City have such a crime surge? Why does Chicago seem to still have the kinds of issues with gun violence that, um, for the most part, New York and L.A. don't have as consistently? Um, why are those things happening? I think that debate, that question is still open. The debate is still underway. Uh, I'm going to read a paragraph that's uh, apropos to what you were just saying from your story, Mick. In 1992, the city banned loitering by people deemed to be gang members until the measure was ruled unconstitutional. Former Mayor Richard M. Daley led an effort to sue gun manufacturers for creating a public nuisance in Chicago and other cities. The case was tossed out of court. Speed bumps and cul-de-sacs were built on dozens of side streets to thwart drive-by shootings, though as police and paramedics discovered, subs such obstacles also made it harder for them to respond uh, to emergencies. Far more common have been announcements that more police will be deployed in high crime areas, often under the banner of a new task force program or initiative. That's where the feds come in, literally. Mick, I'm, I read, this is really well done, This uh, these two paragraphs that you put together, because each sentence refers to a very particular program or strategy that our mayors were adopting and they uh, unveiled to much fanfare uh, as though this would be the first step towards solving the problem. And none of these have worked. In some places you point out, like this is the first one, the city banned loitering by people deemed to be gang members until the measure was ruled unconstitutional. Uh, we still see people advocating for just massive sweeps. We do, seems- and- and different versions of that approach are still used. I mean, now I, I think there have been there's been reporting just over the last uh, few weeks about um, the police uh, now have a, a, a data measure that they call um, dispersal. So when they don't arrest someone, they may go by a corner and they basically tell everybody scram, you know, get out of here. Um and during COVID, they were relying on dispersals instead of arrests because they wanted to limit 
obviously uh, contact, you know, physical contact with people, but they were still trying to scatter people off some of these places they deemed hotspots. So they can't, they don't have a law anymore that says you can't, you know, be a gang member and hang out in this place because, you know, what's a gang member? That's clearly unconstitutional. It just doesn't meet the bar. But there are other tactics they use to try to get people off the street. I was thinking about um, when you and I were doing a series of stories about uh, the grass gap, uh, who's arrested for low-level marijuana possession. This was going back almost a decade now. Um, and I remember we had a police source tell us uh, that they loved using the marijuana possession laws because it helped them get guys off the street. They didn't care about the fact the guy was carrying reefer. They just wanted to lock him up for 24 hours. They wanted mm-hmm. to clean out the space. So what I'm saying is, yeah, there's all these different tactics. I just listed a few of them there. Um, but in the end, uh, none of them seem to work. They're they're either don't they're either not legal, <laughs> which is clearly a problem. Uh, they don't have any lasting impact. I mean, you scatter guys off the corner. What's to stop them from coming back? You know, ten minutes after the after the police car, you know, is gone down the street, um, or they just simply in all these cases they don't get at the root causes of the violence, and that's the real issue, isn't it? Yes. All right. We'll get to that. Uh, But there's another sentence in this paragraph that I find intriguing where federal assistance really would help. And I'll go back to it. Uh, Former Mayor Daley led an effort to sue gun manufacturers for creating a public nuisance in Chicago and other cases. The case was tossed out of court. Uh, Go into that a little more, Mick. What what exactly was Daley up to and why was the case kicked out of court? Yeah, some of these other things may seem kind of silly. I mean, the cul-de-sac and, you know, uh, the speed bump thing. I mean, to me, that just seems totally nuts. Like, that's how you're going to go at violence is putting speed speed bumps in. I mean, speed bumps are fine. You want people to slow down on a residential street. But as an anti-violence initiative, I literally have been in a uh, police car on a ride-along, you know, as a reporter riding along with some beat officers on the west side and they got a call of a a fight um that had attracted like several dozen people there was basically like you know what they were fearing would be some kind of uh low-level civil disturbance developing and that was several blocks away and i remember them trying to speed over to the site but every time they would encounter a speed bump they had to hit the brakes and they would like sort of veer to the side to try to steer around the steepest part of the speed bump so that's that's an that's an example of public policy that wasn't very well thought out. Mm -hmm. However, I think that um, people who uh, even people were skeptical of mayor Daly and some of the stunts he did along the way, um, people who are have clamored for some kind of action on guns and gun control, give him a lot of credit, him and his legal team for the creativity they showed in trying to bring this lawsuit against gun manufacturers. And they basically said, you know, that it was a public nuisance, that it was a defective product. Um, But for a reason, I I believe it did get kind of got thrown in the court, as you mentioned. I think the reasoning was that the city um, couldn't show enough that uh, they basically, these kinds of lawsuits, Ben, I'm obviously not a lawyer, as you can, as everyone could tell, is listening to me right now. But I think you have to show a direct connection between you know, the, um, the entity being sued and the people who are bringing the lawsuit. So who is actually harmed by this? And I think that there were some issues with bringing it forward. So in the end, um, it, it kicked around the courts for a while, but at the end, in the end, it did not succeed. Well, I, uh, I'm a, big advocate of trying to use a product liability uh, lawsuits against gun manufacturers uh, to uh, at least have, make them have some incentive uh, to stop selling their weaponry uh, to just the general public. Uh, And uh, the Congress passed a law uh, exempting them from product liability lawsuits in this affair. So I would love to see, when I think of the federal government getting involved, Mick, I would love to see the federal get involved 
federal government get involved in that way to have Congress and the president uh, pass a law uh, making gun manufacturers uh, responsible for the carnage they cause. What's your general sense of how that would work? Well, my general sense is right now the politics in this country would not work. I mean, for the same reason that most other um, even modest uh, so-called gun control legislation, even even if you don't call it gun control, you know, regulation of firearms, uh, most legislation has really tough sledding um, in Congress because you've got uh, basically a majority of members uh, who – represent areas where, you know, people, gun rights seem to trump so many other issues. Uh, Maybe Trump isn't the verb we should be using anymore, but, uh, you know, you and I know this. I mean, everybody, everybody probably listening knows this. The politics of uh, gun regulation are such that it's extremely difficult to get anything advanced in Congress. And, um, you know, I, I'm not, this is not my area of specialty, but I, it just seems to me that it's kind of like if people want to change that, they're going to have to come up with some new terminology. I mean, so maybe gun control is something that uh, even like hunters who don't like the idea of, um, you know, the, the easy availability of high-powered uh, assault-style weapons – uh, maybe they would sign on to something if it was called, if it was termin, you know, phrased other than gun control. Maybe it's like gun regulation, safe, you know, gun safety. I, I don't know. It's like you, you I think you're going to have to come up with the theme of our conversation, but you're going to have to come up with some new strategies if you want things to change. Having the same fights over and over again, we've kind of seen the outcomes. Um, and it's been said many times before by me and others, but just to remind everybody that you have to, uh, there is there are more requirements for registering and keeping track of an automobile than there are of a firearm. Mm-hmm. There is no registry or anything like that for a firearm. And whereas every time you buy or sell a car, the title is transferred and that is supposed to be recorded. There's nothing comparable for a firearm. So yeah, well, uh, that's true, Mick. And uh, there's my memory serves me correctly. There is some a lawsuit in Connecticut in regards to the Sandy Hook massacre uh, on gun manufacturers' uh, liability. And so that is working its way through the courts in Connecticut. I haven't followed that one in a while. Uh, so I, I suppose I'm hoping that the courts will step in, whereas you point out uh, politicians have been wary of going. All right, I'm going to move on to another paragraph uh, in your story and ask you to explicate it a little bit. Uh, Quote, soon after Trump took office in 2017, he called Chicago a war zone and blamed local leaders for being politically correct. He also threatened via Twitter, I will send in the feds. Of course, Mayor Rahm uh, was the mayor at the time. Uh, But uh, he, Trump, has been using Chicago under Mayor Laurie Lightfoot as well to make some kind of larger uh, political point. Uh, As I do not see... Uh, a correlation between the rhetoric that Donald Trump uh, employs uh, on Twitter and uh, at his press conferences with any uh, decline uh, in crime in the city of Chicago. So it seems to me, uh, this is me speaking, political rhetoric and hot air from Donald Trump. Why don't you dissect it a little bit, Nick? In your thoughts, what is the president up to and what consequence, if any, does it have on crime in Chicago? Well, I think even perhaps since before he was sworn in, uh, he has been bagging on Chicago. And it seems uh, to me and many other observers that it accomplishes several things for him. It's, you know, was Obama's uh, hometown, Obama's political hometown for sure. Um, You know, uh, there's no love lost uh, between Rahm Emanuel and uh, Donald Trump. Um, and now Lori Lightfoot taking over. Uh, these are all Democrats. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, an African-American lesbian. Uh, this is a city that is majority non-white. Uh, and, you know, it does have problems with violence. So all of these ish, all these things, it's like just a convenient target for Trump. Um, and, it, it, you know, as he sees it, I think it plays to his base. 
you know, much the way we were discussing uh, Rory Lightfoot, you know, basically uh, having Trump and, and before her Rahm Emanuel, uh, you know, wanting to stand up to Trump. And, and, you know, I believe both of them object to Trump, his style and most of the things he says. But it's also great politics for them to set themselves apart as, as anti-Trump people. And Trump is doing the same thing for his base, especially as we move into election season. Uh, you know, this is like an easy target for him. So I think that is a part of the thing that is driving uh, his, you know, his announcements, his tweets and all that kind of thing. Because you and I both know if, if he really wanted to do something about the violence here, there are so many other approaches, not just stylistically, but actual policies, actual substance of things that he could do. We've mentioned a few of them, but, you know, to just tweet, I'm going to send in the feds, you know, to go boasting about a surge, uh, you know, how we're going to have to take over after these Democrat, these politically correct Democrat cities and so forth and so on. It's politics. We can see it. Yeah, he's trying to take advantage of uh, Chicago's pain and suffering. Uh, that's how I view it. Uh, I will say this, though, Mick. I recall you writing stories uh, for the reader back in the day having to do, I think it was John Fritchie. I'm doing this out of memory. LaShawn Ford, uh, state rep LaShawn Ford from the West Side. And I believe Fritchie was a state rep at the time. He may have been a Cook County Board Commissioner. Uh, but uh, they were talking about sending the National Guard. Uh, into uh, high crime areas of Chicago, which is a variation of sending in the the feds. It's, a, it's sending in the troops. Uh, f- how popular was that notion uh, that w- advanced by LaShawn Ford and John Fritchie? You're absolutely correct. They were both state reps. They both made that argument. Um, it was not popular. Uh, I mean, some people responded to it positively. Yeah, you have to do something. It's about time you protect the citizens of these neighborhoods and they made that announcement at a time uh, when there was a spike in in gun violence in Chicago much as there is now um, although the numbers I think were probably a little bit lower than actually but it was just as it was deemed to be a, a horrifying moment children were caught in the crossfire as I recall so it was one of those times here where people are frustrated and they're throwing out all kinds of ideas and these two uh, state legislators came forward and basically said, look, enough is enough. We need to provide protection to citizens of these neighborhoods who are hardest hit by the gun violence. And it's interesting in reporting this piece we're talking about now, uh, just last week, I talked to a number of law enforcement, current and former law enforcement people who They'll say much the same thing. It's it's not as popular to say that now, but they're basically arguing, look, uh, you know, you have to do something. We understand that, um, you know, sending in the police isn't uh, isn't going to solve all the root problems and that there's a large number of people in this moment of defund the police who are going to be vehemently ejected, uh, vehemently opposed to any kind of increase in law enforcement activity in their community. Uh, however, you know, that look, there's, there's a compelling civil rights issue on the other side, these people would say, which is uh, the lives of uh, mostly black and brown people, including children, are the ones who are, are primarily, you know, being lost uh, in what's going on. But that's a debate and discussion that's been going on for a long time, since long before um, a few years ago when uh, Fritchie and LaShawn Ford uh, made that pitch. Um, I remember uh, I've actually talked to Ed Smith, former Alderman Ed Smith, who was Alderman of the uh, 28th Ward on the West Side for many years. And uh, in the 90s, he mm-hmm. put that idea out there. Maybe it's time to bring in the National Guard. And I think probably people have brought it up since, uh, you know, well before then. Um, interestingly, when I later talked about that with Ed Smith, he really disowned the whole idea and was like, no, 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 that's, that's not a good idea. That's not the solution. I was frustrated. I was expressing, you know, uh, my, my just frustration that, uh, it seemed like we hadn't mobilized all of our resources to deal with the problem. Uh, but the national guard is not the answer. Um, so I think, 
to bring up to the present, Ben, my sense is that that would be uh, far less popular now. I, I know that's the case. Um, and that's ultimately, like so many of these other things we're talking about, they just don't address the issues. They are uh, kind of reactionary, uh, quick fix kind of solutions. Um, and a lot of people say, well, hey, there are people being shot today, shot yesterday. They're going to be probably shot tomorrow. We need some quick fix solutions to stop this while we're looking on, working on the long-term stuff, which may be true. But the problem is then the, the long-term stuff never gets addressed. And uh, it's it, beyond not even getting dressed, Mick, I watch where the national rhetoric is going. I don't know if you pay attention to this stuff uh, that much, but uh, AOC, uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, uh, got into a debate. I have the word debate in air quotes because it really wasn't a debate with the Republican Congressman Ted uh, Yoho, I think his name is. And um, he was enraged at her because she drew a direct connection between crime and poverty. And so the national debate, I don't even know if it's a debate, Mick, when you can't get Republicans to agree that there's a correlation between crime and poverty when it seems as though the argument they're presenting that that is demeaning to poor people. That's a disgusting argument. And they try to flip it against people like uh, AOC. I don't know even how you can have an honest discussion. You know, I don't, I, you talk, when people talk about the, uh, getting at the underlying root causes, so much of it has to do with inequity and poverty, uh, lack of jobs, et cetera, and so forth. And yet I don't see any effort right now, bipartisan effort uh, on this front. Do you share my frustration or do you think I'm exaggerating? Yeah, no, I, I mean, first of all, do we see a bipartisan effort on anything? I mean, they can't even come up with, uh, you know, an extension of unemployment assistance right now um that's going round and round and round and that's you know a pandemic response there's been no bipartisan effort i mean so it's yet another uh you know ever present uh crisis that's going on here that isn't addressed and you're right i mean the, the two, if there's two sides or certainly two parties i um, can't even have a conversation um and i think you and i you know, both blame one party more than the other, not to defend the democratic apparatus for its inaction on many issues and its lack of spine and follow through and whatnot. But there's one party that on uh, gun violence and gun regulation has uh, just said no, no, no repeatedly. And that's just the fact of the matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's finally this point. The last time we were on the show talking about this, I was applauding an article you wrote for the reader uh, several years back, and it gets into what I call the retaliation culture. I'm obsessed with the retaliation culture in, in, in Chicago, Mick. I see it around me all the time uh, to different levels, different gradations. Sometimes it's just the impulse to strike back verbally. Sometimes it's the uh, the impulse to throw a punch. Uh, and all too often it's impulse to pull out a gun and shoot somebody. And in so many shootings that I read about in the paper, in the aftermath, when they uh, arrest somebody, there's usually a talk about it's retaliatory. There was a, a, sh- a shooting. It was retaliation. Uh, the, sh- the shooter was looking for somebody, thought he had him, shot wildly, missed, hit other people. Or maybe he got the person he wanted, but there were a few other people that got in the way. It's just this impulse uh, that I see in Chicago across the board to retaliate anytime you feel you've been wronged. Uh, and le- the ultimate consequence, I think, is pulling a gun. You raised this point. You were the one who turned me on to this years ago. I have seen nothing, absolutely nothing, in a concerted way done by the leaders in the city of Chicago, uh, Republican, Democrat, whatever, to deal with this. Uh, do you share my self- sense of frustration on this front? Yeah, I I maybe wouldn't say nothing to deal with it, but certainly not enough. I mean, I think that um, ceasefire and the cure violence programs, you know, the interrupters, uh, which at different points in time have received um, some levels of uh, public funding, um, 
you know, that's, that's their whole strategy that violence is basically an epidemic and that the only way you stop any epidemic is to, uh, you know, interrupt it. And if you just let it go, it's just going to keep going and going and going because you're right. It's not just anecdotal. I've seen, um, you know, heard from, from police and seen some studies where it's like, you know, they will link uh, multiple shootings uh, to, a, to cycles of retaliation. Somebody shot somebody and then they shot somebody, then their people came back and back and back. And it just goes on and on and you can, you know, build up. So in some cases you may not be, uh, despite the, the horrifying statistics of, of violence here, um, you may not be talking about huge numbers of people in all likelihood you are not. Um, but they, uh, you know, because of this, this culture, this epidemic that's going on, um, it ends up, uh, you know, touching so many other lives because there's the back and forth. And then of, of course, as we hear all the time, there's all the, uh, people who are end up getting hit with bullets who, uh, had nothing to do with the original dispute or the, the individuals involved in it. Um, so yeah, you're right. And, uh, so I don't, I, I think there are a lot of groups who are trying to work on, um, addressing not just the root causes, but the culture of, violence and carrying a gun and everything else. But I think it's an uphill battle and is enough being done is enough being spent. I mean, I think that's something we constantly need to be talking about and addressing because whatever we're doing now, it's either not the right strategy or it's not enough. Yeah. And one thing's for certain when Donald Trump or William Barr uh, talk about sending in the feds, they're not talking about sending in federal social workers or counselors, or therapists, or mental health workers. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So they're not talking about that kind of assistance, which I think a lot of Chicagoans would welcome. Yeah, this isn't the Department of Health and Human Services who's making these announcements. It's the Department of Justice, and they're sending in uh, agents from the FBI and the DEA and the uh, ATF. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in defense of those agents, if defense is the right word, I mean, you know, they're going to go in to do what they were trained to do, which is to uh, investigate cases, to work on the street. Um, that's what they do. And so uh, you're totally right, Ben. It's it's like a short-sightedness that this is the only approach we have. This is the only thing we can do is once again, we're going to respond by sending in more cops, mm. whether they're local police or they're federal agents you know, that seems to be the solution we fall back on over and over and over again. That's Mick Dumkey doing the talking. We're talking about his latest article, ProPublica. I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, it's related to themes that Mick has been addressing for a long time. People probably in Chicago know Mick uh, as a criminal justice reporter. I know him. I'm going to move away from criminal justice and get into a little lighter conversation to close down the interview. Uh, people may not realize this. Uh, Mick Dumkey, and I say this with all due respect, is a total political geek. Uh, he tries to hide that fact by being all sophisticated and everything. Uh, but he's a total political geek. Like, for instance, without cheating and looking at your phone, Mick, if I told you, ask you right now, who is the alderman of the 13th Ward? You would say what? I would say Marty Quinn. And that would be correct. See what I'm correct. saying, ladies and gentlemen? Political geek. So if I said to you, what other test? Who is the alderman of the 41st Ward? Without looking at your phone, the answer would be who? Uh Anthony Napolitano. Two for two. See what I'm saying, Dennis? The man is yeah. a political geek. I'm not a geek. Right. I'm waiting for you to say it's right before I put. That's correct. Oh, that is correct. <laughs> uh, all right. He's right. He, I, he can do all 50. I probably, he, I probably could, but it's also possible that I will stumble. And I don't know. This isn't a cop out when I say, I mean, how do you keep track of everybody? You've been covering this stuff even longer than I have. You know, I'm fairly plugged in. There are like some, some new aldermen to me. They're new, even though they've been in there for like a year and a half now that I've never met or talked with. And once in a while, I'll be like, no, wait a second. Which ward is that again? And, you know, so I'm going to admit that in some ways it's, it's probably like a kindergarten teacher who every fall gets a new class. 
Although my excuse isn't as good because it's only every four years. But uh, uh, I have issues, Mick. I have deep issues and I am addressing <laughs> them every day of my life. Uh, the things I know, the things I spend my time obsessing over, uh, my late up late uh, reading. Uh, I got a lot of issues. And so every now and then, like I'm asked, who is the alderman of the 12th ward? And I have to resist the effort to say Chester Cuda. Okay, right. who hasn't been the alderman since the 1970s, I want to say. So the fact that I know that is really weird. And you know what's weird? It's like I'll be talking to somebody and I'll refer, who is from that area and I'll say, oh, yeah, Chester Cuda. And they'll go, yeah. And they, they just take it in stride. And then I'll say to him, don't you think it's weird that I know who the alderman of your ward is from 1970? Don't you think that's weird? Well, I guess so. So yeah. uh, we understand uh, each other. A, a colleague yesterday asked me, you ever heard of a guy named Bernard Nystein? And I was like, oh, my uh, God. Yes. 29th I, Ward, state legislator, was the ward committeeman, the ward boss for years, you know, and so forth right. and so on. All right. I'm just going to say this about that. Mick Dumkey has one of the great stories of all time ready to be released. I've been keeping it a secret for over a year. That's all I'm going to say, Mick. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. That's a great tease, Ben. And yeah. Bernard Nystein, who I know, I don't know him literally, never met him, uh, plays something of a role in it. That's all I'm going to say. And this is a story that is so freaking good. I won't need an email from any publicist to bring Mick on to talk about this. We may do five interviews on this particular story. That's how great. A story it is uh and you'll see what a true political geek McDumkey is <laughs> going back and to all right so here this is the that lead up at least, ben that part you just said that last sentence that part at least is true the rest of it i think is <laughs> going to be open for debate but that part is true. no that's a great story i can't wait for it all right now uh let's get to the the political question and I'm asking this, I'm assuming that you haven't already seen this and that you're not cheating on your phone. Uh, so here you go. Six Chicago aldermen, six current Chicago aldermen, so Chester Cuda is not in the list, six current Chicago aldermen have called on Michael Joseph Madigan to step down as House Speaker. Michael McDumkey, I want you to name those six Chicago aldermen. Okay. I have not seen this, so I don't know. Um, so I'll be making some educated guesses. Um, one of them is not Marty Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a safe assumption, Marty Quinn. Uh, Madigan's handpicked alderman. Go ahead, Mick. Yes, I, I'm going to extend that to I bet that uh, no one from the far southwest side is in the list. So, uh, Silvana Tabarez, uh, Michael Zalewski's uh, successor in the 23rd Ward, I'm guessing, is also not on the list, right? Yes, you would be correct. Silvana, by the way, very nice woman, former student of mine, um, who uh, probably wisely no longer returns my calls. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's because she, you didn't like the paper she wrote. If you give her her day, she'd be calling you back. Anyway, I just made that up. I do not she know. Was actually, what yeah, she was actually a very good student. So okay. I think it has more to do with politics, Ben. Something. I, I think so. Okay, go ahead. All right, She's... So let's go on. I am going to say uh, we're probably going to have. Um, let's see some of the more progressive-minded aldermen who would be on this list, right? So um, what about uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa? All right, now time out. Uh, yeah. Should you want me to respond with each one? Every time you say an alderman, yes or no? Is that how we're doing it? Okay. Well, so you want to give me some clues? You tell no, 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 no. Your first guess is Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and the answer is eh, he is right. not on the list. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, uh, what about um, Brendan Riley? Uh, most definitely not on the list. He used to work for Madigan, didn't he? He did used to work for Madigan, and the reason I threw his name out there was because I, um, I thought I did see something from Brendan, but it was probably more in the 
um, if it's proven to be true camp, which is the line everyone has fallen back. Oh, my God. Let's give Eric Zorn another shout out. The, the so-called if troop. Eric Zorn coined that phrase. Yes. <laughs> oh, there's profiles and courage. We're going to write a new chapter for the if troop people. Uh, but uh, no, Brendan Riley is most definitely not on the list. Okay, what about uh, Byron Sigjo Lopez? Ding, ding, correct. ding. You are correct. <laughs> okay. Um, what about, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of, uh, um, well, the aforementioned Jeanette Taylor, she weighed in. Uh, she is not on the list. JT, okay. I love you dearly. She's not on the list. Uh, and I don't know why. In particular, she's not on the list, uh, Mick, but uh, there was an excellent column by Rich Miller uh, that ran in the Sun-Times on Sunday where he talked about how many uh, black elected officials are reluctant to uh, come out against Madigan on the grounds that they, just because the feds uh, indict somebody, or in this case, they haven't even indicted them, charged somebody, they, it doesn't mean they are uh, believe the feds. Uh, and they have a strong sense of what skepticism about such things uh, sure. so so she may be in that camp but she, uh, she, she is also not. may she may not in fairness to some of these others uh who have not spoken out they may not have been asked either i mean well this is a group that's voluntarily came forward yes so for their own reasons they've basically said uh they've come out against madigan um yes so, all right, well, before I further embarrass myself by throwing out 40 other names that are incorrect, how about a few clues? All right, I'll give you this. They're all rookies. Okay. Um, uh, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez. That's correct. All right. Um, who else is a rookie? Uh, my alderman, Maria Haddon. That's correct. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm liking this. It's very affirming, Dennis. Thank you for throwing that out there. Um, uh, all right, give me, give me a side of town. Help me out a little bit. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, all that reefer McDunkey smoked in the 90s is coming back to haunt him. Um, you, have, you have said, wait, you said three? Uh, three? three? What was mm-hmm. the thought? I've forgotten. Oh, All the good Lord. I smoked in the 70s. Sigjo Lopez, you oh, yeah, said Maria right. Haddon, and you said Rosanna yeah. Rodriguez Sanchez. Here's a hint uh, one of them is Ben's Alderman. That's correct. Okay, Matt Martin. That's correct. That was, that was a gimme. Uh, Daniel Laspada. That's correct. Yeah. One more. And um, one more. I'll give you a hint. He loves hip hop music. <laughs> <laughs> Andre Vasquez. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, he did that flawlessly. Effortlessly. Yeah. Well, if I edit it out, no. he did it flawlessly. Yeah. Let's edit it out and make him look like a genius. Oh, Ben, come on. Andre Vasquez, Matt Martin. No, but you know what, Mick? I, I had a lot of fun with this one because um, <laughs> I've been having so much fun with this. And it, because every all the politicians in, in and around Chicago, the Democratic ones anyway, are so cautious on this particular issue because Michael Madigan is still in power and as such controls quite a bit of what goes on in Springfield. So you don't want to alienate him. Right. Uh, at the same time, you be viewed as too close to him uh, because if he does go down, then you'll look bad. So it's this delicate dance that they're doing and you can almost predict like which alderman, like these rookies, none of them were elected with the assistance of Michael Madigan. Right. Or, or any other or any other like longstanding sort of insider Democrats. Right? They all ran, um, you know, from the left, independent campaigns from the left. So, yes. you know, I mean, I'm not saying that they're not speaking out of their uh, from their beliefs and idealism but they're also you know this is not only no political risk for them but it actually is politically beneficial to them and the terrain that they've staked out to speak out against mike yeah well i I mean in that regards that last point any north side alderman in my humble opinion uh is not sacrificing a a tremendous amount of political uh, equity to go against madigan michael madigan 
is Michael Madigan on the north side of Chicago, Mick, among rank and file voters, is mm, kind of where um, Ed Burke is. Not quite, but almost. Yeah, right. And so just uh, Harry Osterman of the 48th Ward is not going to have you know, instigate a, a voter rebellion if he were to come out against um, I'm Michael Madigan. I just picked Terry Osterman. Tom Tunney in the 44th Ward is not going to, you know, they're not going to, uh, it, it's not going to be like an outrage. Constituents are going to come knocking at his door. So, well, it's interesting. We could, we could really nerd out if we board in on this a little bit, but, you know, amazingly, the 48th Ward doesn't really have much of a history um, at least in the city council, does it, um, of that kind of like independent uh, progressivism. I mean, whereas, you know, north of Devon Street in my ward, 49th Ward, maybe the most liberal voting district in the city of Chicago. Uh, and it's, but I don't think it translates all the time to the 48th Ward because they just haven't had the same kind of uh, leaders there um, for the most part. Yeah, well, I don't know, but it's it's an interesting thing. It is uh, the 40 just to help uh, people out. The 48th Ward is just north, excuse me, just south of Rogers Park, which is where Mick lives uh, in his ward. And uh, the alderman is a guy named Harry Osterman, uh, who was a state rep before he became alderman. And as such, he was part of Michael Madigan's caucus in Springfield. And at one point, one uh, of Mad- Madigan sent his lawyer in to knock off uh, one of Harry's opponents. So that could be a reason that. But I think Kelly Cassidy, who is a state rep, uh, came on the show last week from the north side, has come out against Madigan. If her, if she does not live in um, the 48th ward, she's very close to it. So she lives. She lives in the 49th ward. She's the ward committee person. I that's. Believe. I said um, corrected. Now, How did I not know that? I don't she, know, but th- that is amazing. I did not know that. Uh, well, anyway, uh, you did a good job, Mick. I mean, let's give him credit. <laughs> is there some kind of prize we can give him, Dennis? Not really. No. <laughs> okay, Mick, we're sending you well, a T-shirt. Wait, anyway, guys. Yeah, <laughs> you get the T-shirt. It'll be in the mail. You know, one of these days. Uh, Anyway, Mick Dumkey, thank you very much for being a good sport and playing along with that game and for your uh, outstanding journalism. ProPublica, you can see the article he wrote. Uh, and I give you a lot of credit, Mick, for um, you know, t- taking a deep dive. And it's a long haul on this uh, the issue of criminal justice and trying to uh, hold people accountable uh, for their actions. And talk about politicians and elected officials who keep promoting programs that don't work, Mick. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, yes. Um, yes. So, so I uh, encourage you to keep writing these stories. Mick, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Ben. And uh, Dennis, uh, again, good to see you on my video screen. Uh, so thanks for having me on, gentlemen. All right, that's Mick Dumkey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.